This is the CVBT Audio Interview Podcast, where you'll get ideas about improving your bottom line in business and in life from experts around the world. Ask a manager what's the hardest part of the job these days, and many are likely to say it's dealing with fearful employees who prefer to play it safe at all costs. Well, fear of being labeled, fear of their managers, fear of retaliation, even fear of losing their jobs, are all at the top of a recent study as to why workers no longer speak up. But for businesses looking to grow and stay ahead of the competition, such silence can come at a financial cost. Our guest on this CVBT audio interview podcast is workplace expert Bill Treasurer, author of the bestseller Courage Goes to Work, How to Build Backbones, Boost Performance, and Get Results. It was republished in May. Bill, you wrote this uh, seminal book 10 years ago. Is it still relative to today's workplace? And if so, why and how? Oh, sure. Well, Doug, thanks again for having me on. I'm looking forward to spending time with you and your listeners. Courage Goes to Work, it's in the 10th uh, anniversary since it came out. And I think it's probably more relevant today than it was then in that courage is the antidote to fear. And many, if not most, organizations are still bastions of fear, which mean their opportunity is ripe to demonstrate courage. A lot of leaders, unfortunately, still stoke people's fears as a way to motivate them to get things done. We just have been able to show over time that that has a negative impact on job output and performance and, in fact, safety. So now is the time to put people's courage to work, not fear. So are you saying courage can be learned? Oh, yeah. You know, you've been learning how to be courageous since you were a little kid. You might remember when your parents stood behind your little bicycle and took the training wheels off, pushed you forward. You took four wobbly pedals and scraped your knees and fell down. What did your parents make you do? They made you get back up on that bike and persist through suffering, which is a form of courage. So you've been learning how to be courageous since you were a kid. Maybe when you were 12 years old for your first time, full of nerves, full of of rioting butterflies in your stomach, you had to confront a schoolyard bully. Well, guess what? There's bullies in the workplace. And you still have to confront them later in life. So you learn how to be courageous. We have a whole holiday devoted to encountering fear. It's called Halloween. So you've been learning how to be courageous since you were a kid, and it doesn't stop when you're a kid. Courage is teachable, and it's learnable, and it's necessary to have a thriving life. Now, with Halloween, of course, we got candy. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Good point, yeah. Sometimes there needs to be incentive to move towards your courage. There's no doubt. Now, in 10 years of this book being out uh, and distributed worldwide, what has been some of the uh, uh, reactions that you have noted that said, well, this is courage at work? Yeah. So, you know, you'll see courage manifest itself in many forms. And and I do think, by the way, that there are some cultural differences, which I've noticed as I traveled around the country, uh, around the world. Um, But, you know, taking a job that eclipses your current skills. When you take a job that puts you in over your head for a little while is an example of what we would call small everyday courage. Um, Giving a presentation to your boss's boss or asking for the big order from a potential client or having to fire someone 
or fire a customer occasionally. The ways that courage manifests itself are literally infinite in the workplace. Anytime you're having to face discomfort, do an uncomfortable thing or face a fear, it becomes an opportunity to activate uh, your courage and put it into practice. Now, as managers, should we be uh, somehow weaving together uh, safety nets for our workers when they take uh, uh, courageous actions and fail? Yeah, Doug, it's a really good question. You know, I would say our most essential job as leaders is to create safety. Now, now first, that means physical safety. We need to be able to provide workers with a safe environment where they can go home at the end of the day, whatever they're doing. But, you know, maybe it's a construction company, for example. And they're, to be able to provide a safe environment where people can go home in the same way that they came to work each day, maybe even enhanced because they've learned something at work. But more important than that, Doug, is to create psychological safety so people feel safe that they can extend themselves, try new things, occasionally fail, speak up to the boss without uh, feeling that they can't, uh, that they have to bite their tongue all the time. One of the people that I've worked with in the past is Sarah Blakely, the founder of a company called Spanx. Spanx is a women's shapewear company, and she was on the cover of Forbes magazine as the youngest self-made female billionaire. And she wrote the original foreword to Courage Goes to Work 10 years ago. And what she said is when people make a mistake at Spanx, especially when they are forward falling and key us in onto a new business insight that we otherwise wouldn't have had, I'm never disappointed. In fact, I go up to them and I give them a big high five. And it creates psychological safety so that people are willing to stretch and experiment and innovate and try new things. Well, that certainly takes a, a courageous manager to accept that. Hey, do you find that is is commonplace or not commonplace? I, I find that it's not commonplace. Let, let, let's face it, right? Not everybody gets to be on the cover of Forbes magazine as a billionaire. So she's doing things that are outside the mainstream. She's doing things that are, you know, quote unquote, not normal. But winning isn't normal. It's doing things that other people aren't doing. I think it's more often the case that leaders stoke people's fears. They think if I can just make people afraid enough, then they're going to be conscientious enough to do a good job. But actually, in the long run, fear has a detrimental impact on safety, on performance, uh, on morale. If all you're doing is stoking people's fears, you're going to get exactly the opposite impact on what you're wanting in terms of productivity. And we see it, Doug, even in small ways. When you hear a self-important senior executive stand in front of a room full of people and say this overused phrase, they'll say, <clears throat> well, what keeps me awake at night is what keeps me awake at like." What they're doing is showcasing their own fears by talking what keeps them awake at night and basically telling their workforce, unless you're afraid about these same things and unless you have anxiety about these things, I'm not going to feel safe as a CEO. That's the transmission of fear. Employees don't care about what keeps you awake at night. What they want to know is what gets you up in the morning, what gives you hope for the future that we're facing, and where's my place in this better future that you're going to take me to. And essentially, what brings you into work besides the company car? Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. That's a great way of putting it. You, you have mentioned a, a problem in management that you call fillers and spillers. What are you talking about? 
So I broadly divide leaders into two different behavioral dispositions that I call fillers and spillers. I'll start with the spiller. A spiller is like I talked about a moment ago. They use fear and anxiety as a way to motivate people to get things done. It's the, they over control. Uh, they lead by fear. They're, they in-fear people instead of encourage people. And as a consequence, they may get a productivity boost in the short run, but in the long run, it's detrimental to productivity and it undermines people's ability to be loyal to that leader. A lot of times it's the transmission of their own fears that they have as leaders. I contrast that with a filler. Now, a filler will nudge you out into discomfort because they want you to grow and not become apathetic at work, but they encourage you. They put courage inside of you so you can stretch towards higher standards and gain new skills, and they transmit confidence, not fear. And those I call a filler because they're filling you with courage. They encourage you versus a spiller is discouraging you, causing, injecting you with fear and anxiety, causing you to displace your courage. And, and while people are filling and, uh, and becoming fillers, uh, the boss, meanwhile, is being hammered by his or her boss to meet certain goals. How does all of this work into the daily get-it-done business? Yeah, this a, it's a good question because we're on a constant fixation with results and productivity. And let's face it, your judgment, people would judge you as successful or not successful as a leader to the extent that you get things done. You have to get results. And you're right. Their own bosses are putting them under pressure. And God forbid you're a shareholder-led company uh, with outside shareholders in incessant pressure to get more, more, more. The challenge is this, that if you're fixated solely on results and production and productivity, oftentimes it'll come at the expense of treatment of people. It's like the Aesop fable of the goose with the golden egg. It's like you're looking at that golden egg and say, give me another egg. Hey, you gave me an egg yesterday. I need two eggs today. I want three eggs tomorrow. And it's about the egg. Give me the egg. Give me the egg. Not recognizing that you're killing the goose in the process that lays the egg. The truth is that leaders rely on people to get things done. And the treatment of people matters towards getting those results. It's an ends and means things. Results are ends, but the treatment of people are how you get the better results. And unfortunately, we fixate far too much on those ends and not enough on the treatment of people to get a better ends. I, I can think of several uh, managers I've worked with over the years who would probably agree 100% with what you're saying, but then they go back uh, to their operation and there they are being hammered over the head. It must be tough to implement this stuff. It is. It's uh, not an easy thing to do. And it's uh, that said, I think that over time, a leader will run into themselves and they become their own limitations. And they start to recognize, you know, what got you here in terms of self-performance, in terms of uh, driving production, at some point, you're not able to eke out greater levels of performance, or you get feedback about your own leadership, maybe through a 360 degree feedback, and you get, or somebody who you really value quits because of you. And now you have to sort of reevaluate who you are as a leader and the, the highest form of leadership maturity, in my estimation, is a leader who makes this what I call, Doug, and just to put it out there to your listeners, I call it the holy shift. 
that you all have to make a holy shift as a leader, a shift away from self-service for yourself and aggrandizement of your own power as a leader. And you make the holy shift to recognize the people I really need to be focused on are developing the people around me, making sure that I'm equipping them to be better, raising them to higher standards, providing training to them, treating them well. And then you're becoming an other-focused leader, not a self-focused leader, a movement from selfishness to selflessness. Well, Bill, how on earth did you get to this point in your life? Hmm. Well, you know, I got into the idea of leadership. I've been doing leadership development now for over 25 years, and it all started out because I worked for somebody. Uh, actually, somebody worked for me. I had a team of people that I was leading, and I didn't know who I was as a leader at a young age. I was about 25, and one of my workers came up to me after I had just berated the entire team for what I saw as poor performance and production. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, hey, treasurer, if you ever talk to like us, uh, talk to us like that again, I will walk. I don't need this job this badly to be treated by anybody the way you just treated us. And I got defensive. I was like, hey, man, I'm your boss. I'll talk to you any way I want to. But I thought about it that night and I realized he was right. I didn't know who I was as a leader at all. I had adopted the leadership style of one boss that I had, had before me and ultimately, I was channeling my dad. I was being my hot-tempered father coming out of my body. I didn't know who I was as a leadership, uh, a leader. So I read my first book on leadership, which was The One Minute Manager by Ken Blanchard, and it got me turned on to the idea of leadership. I got better as a leader, and then I put myself through graduate school and did a uh, I did my thesis on leadership, all because some one worker had the courage to tell me that I was obnoxious as a leader, and it transformed my whole life, and now I dedicate myself to helping other people become better leaders. So what got you out of the corporate world into starting your own business? You know, I had a boss who was a fantastic mentor. His name is uh, Heinz Brannan, and I was working for the company Accenture, one of the world's largest management consulting companies, a $35 billion company, and he got ready to retire. And I had great sponsorship under him. I knew I was never going to have the boss again that I had had in this person. He was the leader that I could admire and look up to. It's been 20 years since I worked at Accenture, and he's still a mentor to me today. But I thought, if I'm ever going to go out and uh, – I had aspirations to – start my own consulting company. I knew my first book was coming out and I saw him get ready to retire. And I just decided that if I wanted to actualize my full potential as a human being and get into what I call my courage building. So I have a courage building company. In fact, couragebuilding.com is one of my URLs. I thought I'm not going to be able to do it here at Accenture. It's a great company, but for what I want for my life, um, I'm going to need to leave. And since he was uh, retiring, it became the way out. And who do you think my first client was when I started my business? I, I'm beginning to think it might have been him. Yeah, it was Accenture. It was the company I left. They became my first client. And well, wait a minute. The, well, hang the, on. The, just wait, 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 wait. Aren't they doing the same thing you're doing? You know, they do it differently. They do. Uh, I certainly learned a lot about leadership and team development when I was at Accenture, and I got great business experience. And I think they're a terrific company. And as I say, they were uh, my biggest client for many years. Uh, but the differentiator is that my company focuses a lot more on courage building. And part of the reason for that, Doug, is 
I mentioned to you that I was uh, my first worker that, you know, sort of gave me that tough feedback. What I didn't mention is that I was a professional high diver leading the U.S. high diving team. And I used to dive off of 100 foot platforms into small pools that were 10 feet deep, traveling at speeds in excess of 50 miles an hour as a member of the U.S. high diving team. And my first job was to lead the team of athletes. Uh, and one of those divers confronted me on my poor leadership. Wow. Uh, just the idea of jumping off a diving board that's two feet above the water uh, <laughs> causes some of us uh, to have a lot of second thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> and it's how I found my courage because I'm a – Wait a minute. If you're jumping off <laughs> – you found it after <laughs> after you've been jumping off these things for how many years? <laughs> I found it during. Uh, I found it in this way. I was a – uh, I grew up with a profound fear of heights, and yet I became a good diver on the low board. And so colleges started to dangle scholarships in front of me, and I had to confront a profound fear of heights, but working with a coach who incrementally over a small, you know, over a period of time, lifted the diving board from one meter to then I got to try two meter. Eventually, I got a three meter list of dives by modulating between comfort and discomfort. He would move me out to a higher height and I would get used to that height. I'd be very afraid way out into discomfort. But once I got used to it and got bored, it became his clue to lift the diving board to a higher height. And eventually I got a three meter list of dives, got a full scholarship to West Virginia University and continued that process of modulating between comfort and discomfort. And I activated and found my courage and later became a world-class high diver through the process of confronting fear. And that's one thing your listeners should know. Courage is not fearlessness. Courage is fearful. When you are in a courageous moment, your knees are knocking, your teeth are chattering, your skin is blotching, your hands are sweating, but you persist and do the thing you're afraid of. It's the definition of courage. Bill, is there anything you'd like to add we haven't had a chance to talk about? Doug, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you and your listeners. The only thing I'd leave you with is that Aristotle said that courage is a virtue. And he said it's the first virtue because it makes all the other virtues possible. So when your listeners are doing something scary but they're persisting, they're activating the virtue of courage and being a virtuous person. And one, one last thing, uh, for our folks who are listening and don't have the text in front of them, could you give them a, an idea of how to get in touch with you? Sure. They can always find me at couragebuilding.com. It's one of my URLs. They can find me at billtreasurer.com or email me at btreasurer at giantleapconsulting.com. And they can always find the book Courage Goes to Work on, at any of their online retailers. You've been listening to the CVBT Audio Interview Podcast, one-on-one interviews with experts in business and personal growth. Keep up to date with all of our podcasts and news that impacts business by subscribing to our daily email newsletter. To sign up for a free introductory subscription, please send us your preferred email address. Our email is editor at biznews.com. That's spelled B-I-Z-G-N-U-S dot com. Thanks for listening.